Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're... Uh, again, going to be talking about the kingdom of God, and we're going to be looking at Thessalonians today. A little bit about that this morning, we because I added Second Thessalonians chapter two to our freedom of religion page because freedom of religion is about freedom under God. That if you're not practicing pure religion, you're not practicing what you need to practice in order to practice and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And you will probably not end up being free. We're going to be looking at Thessalonians and uh, today, and uh, we're going to see uh, what they were talking about there in uh, the letter to the Thessalonians uh, out there in Greece from Paul. So uh, this particular letter is, most everybody agrees that it was written by Paul. Most New, uh, New Testament scholars agree that Paul the Apostle is the author of this. He says in the context that he is the author. Uh, and the letter was probably written from Corinth. Uh, at least the first Thessalonians was written from Corinth. Uh, some information would point to Athens as the uh, authorship of uh, at least one of the letters. And uh, this was during... Uh, you know, his writing after Timothy had visited Macedonia. So anyway, um, I put together a little bit on this, and I'm still putting some more notes together on in, in the Second Thessalonians. Because, but to really understand this letter, you need to understand what the church was doing. And of course, those who've been listening to all of our hundreds of audios that we've already put out and read our articles and everything are starting to hopefully realize that the church actually had a mission to set the captive free. That was the mission of Christ and, and he simply passed that baton on to his disciples who he appointed a dominion, an actual kingdom. I appoint unto you a kingdom. It's like saying, I appoint unto you a dominion. And so the church has a diminutive authority. And the more you get into our understanding of freedom of religion and the free exercise of religion, is the free exercise of dominion. I just was talking to a, a politician and a young politician, uh, hopefully politician someday, uh, he's hoping to get an apprenticeship in Washington, D.C. next year. But uh, he got kind of an earful while he was visiting with us about uh, what the kingdom of God is all about and uh, what's going on behind the scenes. And he's an interesting guy, and he's, and he's learning. He's young. He's starting out at the right time. And... Uh, and he sees a problem. He sees a lot of the problems with what's going on. But in order to really get to the root problem, it's like being a mechanic. I mean, you can you can say, well, there's a problem here in the engine and there's a problem in here in the engine. But what's the real source of the problem? Is it uh, the timing chain or is it the camshaft? Uh, because if you just fix the timing chain and the camshaft has still uh, got a wobble to it, you're just going to wreck another timing chain. <laughs> so, so you have to get down to the root causes, and sometimes you have to rebuild the whole engine from scratch. But it's still going to be an engine. And, of course, what Christ was doing was giving you another engine, another form of government. The government of the Pharisees was making the word of God to none effect, and so he was going to give you a new government that was going to make the word of God to effect. And this is why they said there is another king, one Jesus. And the disciples were from another dominion. They were not of the world they were of the kingdom of God. They were the ones who could say there is another king. But they went out and served the people who gathered together in free assemblies and began to become the fuel and moving power of that engine of Christianity. Because they couldn't exercise authority 
over the people. The people had to exercise authority over their own passions and their own desires, their own covetousness, their own lack of virtue until they had virtue. And it was the social virtues of the Christian that came in conflict with the corruption of Rome. And there was an abundance of corruption. We had a long talk today about all the corruption going on and how deep it goes in American government, in American society. And you can't change all the corruption at the top until you change the corruption in your own heart. This is why Christ said, repent, think differently, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And like I said, those who have been listening to a lot of recordings know that, and, and read a lot of the articles, know that there is a lot of information that... Uh, begins to show what the church was quietly doing in the hearts and minds of the people that changed the course of human history. Unfortunately, most of what's posing today as Christianity is actually more in line with what the Pharisees were doing than what the early church was doing. So anyway, the the letter is mostly a personal in nature with only the final chapter spent addressing controversies, uh, Paul encourages the uh, and reassures the Christians uh, to continue working quietly. Working doing what? What were they doing that was working? He's, uh, it does not make much reference to justification by faith, nor does it bring up the question of Jewish and Gentile relationships, because that wasn't really a problem in Thessalonia. So, most of the New Testament scholars believe that Paul wrote this epistle, as I said. But some modern scholars suggest there uh, is a conflict between uh, the style and theology. I, I see a little bit in the style but they were written a little bit at different times. And actually styles can change slightly just because of mood. And it was the second chapter in which he's uh, talking more about, or the second is Thessalonians where he was talking more about uh, dealing with the issues of controversy. And so his mood would change with that also. But I don't really see uh, a big difference in theology. It's just... But but there is sometimes a big difference in the interpretation of the theology of Paul. Because this has been a big problem. And we've seen it in our study in the Philippians and in our study of Romans and Corinthians. That people are taking Paul out of the context of Paul and inventing a theology of Paul that does not really match up with the theology of Christ. And Paul preached Christ first. So if Paul seems to be in disagreement with Christ, you probably don't understand Paul, or you don't understand Christ, or you don't understand either one. But they were actually in agreement. Pretty much in agreement, more so than I would say a lot of other people in the world today. So anyway, uh, most of the people do believe that it was written uh, around 51 or 52nd. Uh, year of A.D. And this is accepted in part because it was included in the Marcion uh, canon, uh, which, although a lot of people throw them over into the heretics of society, uh, the reality is that their writings are authentic back to that time. And, and uh, Muratorian fragments that and I'm a big fan of fragments because there is more fragments than there are whole documents. So the fragments a lot of times will tell you a great deal. Also, there are slight changes in some of the texts that we see as the whole text of the epistles when you you, you look at different sources. And a lot of times the fragments being older are actually giving you some insight. When the fragments are identifiable to a particular gospel or epistle, they give you more clear insight into the original letter because they're closer to the original letter and you can see how certain things are changed. And 
not so much with Greek, although occasionally we'll see certain words uh, in the Greek that, you know, where a preposition is so close to the following word that it actually sometimes is misinterpreted as another word, and it's actually a preposition in a word, and that changes the whole meaning of the sentence. Not that you can't get an understanding of the gospel because from Scripture, but you don't ever really get the understanding of the gospel from Scripture. You get it from the Holy Spirit. The the Scripture, following the Scripture is like following the tracks of a mountain lion. (laughs) They're there. They're leading you to your goal. uh, And sometimes they're behind you because that's where the mountain lion will end up is behind you if you keep tracking them closer and closer. But... uh, the reality is is that the Bible is pointing the direction, but only the Holy Spirit gives you the revelation. So anyway, this particular Thessalonians is also mentioned uh, by name uh, by Arrhenius and uh, quoted by Ignatius and Justin and Polycarp. So yeah, it's probably authentically Paul's. It's dating back to that time. And uh, if there were some minor changes, I don't really see anything that could keep you from understanding the gospel if you have a heart and mind to do so. Some suggest that the second coming of Christ expressed in Second Thessalonians differs so strikingly from those found in First Thessalonians but this seems dependent on some interpretations that might not be accurate in the beginning because we take these phrases and these words and these references and theologians and religionists often paint whole theologies around these, which, you know, I'm not totally against, you know, I don't want to, you know, stifle free speech and free thought, but the reality is when People do those sorts of things and skip the fundamentals and basics of Christianity, then yes, it does harm. They still are allowed to do it, but not without impunity. I've done more notes in the second Thessalonians than I have done in first, and uh, there's really not much to note. It's like it it said at the beginning that this is a friendly conversation with them. And And, you know, it's addressing because they had a relationship with these people. And so that they're coming back and sharing that information with them. So, anyway, in 1 Thessalonians, if we uh, go there and start looking at uh, what Paul is actually writing in the documents that he is writing in this letter. It begins with Paul, Silas, Silvanus, and Timotheus. Uh, unto the church of Thessalonia, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it mentions in this very first verse, it mentions God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace, grace was a term that was almost a governmental term. That's like forgiveness, it's, you know, absolution, which came often from government. We're going to forgive you. But the word Lord is certainly a government term. And Jesus, of course, is his name, and Christ is the anointing. It says, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it repeats that again. It mentions Father twice. Because there is another father. It's the fathers of the earth. The senator's royal father. And Caesar was the Patronus. Our father art in Rome. But they're, set, they're talking about our father who is God. And then later on, like I said, in the, he will say in that second chapter. That they are like a father. But they aren't the father. They aren't forcing the offerings. They aren't demanding your actions they are serving you in verse 2 we see we give thanks to god always for you all making mention of you in our prayers 
remembering without ceasing our work of faith and labor of love and patience and hope of our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Again, they mention our Father and the Lord. You know, there is another king on Jesus and the Christ, the anointing. We need to be anointed by his love, by his patience, in hope, taking care of one another in faith. Verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. And in much assurance, as ye know, what manner of man we were among you for your sake. In other words, what they're saying is what it says in James. By our works you shall know whether we have real faith or not. Are we leading you in the path of righteousness? Are we teaching you covetous practices and trying to justify covetous practices? Justify borrowing money against the future of your children so that you can have pleasure and comfort today. Are you sacrificing according to the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, for one another, caring about one another's children, one another's fate, one another's freedom, one another's liberty? Somebody said uh, to my son the other day when he was talking about this new bill coming out uh, that is going to force vaccination on children to some degree, quite a bit, removing all religious exemptions and personal exemptions. You can't even get a doctor's note unless it's from the doctors they pick. And then even the note isn't the final say. It's a board of unelected officials will be the final say-so in whether or not you have to get the vaccination. But we talked in great depth with the people that were meeting here about, you know, phase two, phase three, phase four, that is yet to come. And we're not going to say this on the radio. You join the network. You come to the festivals. We'll share it with your ministers. And the ministers will share it with you. We're not broadcasting it. And Christ wouldn't either. There are things that are given unto the brethren that are not given unto the general population. And if you will not sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, then you are not of the brethren because you're not doing what Christ said. He who does the will of my Father is my mother and my brother and my brethren. And the, what the will of the Father was is that you sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and learn what it means to love one another in free assemblies. That's That was the message of Christ. That's the gospel of the kingdom. That's the gospel of the dominion of God. The gospel of the dominion of God is not you get to covet your neighbor's goods to men and exercise authority and then go to church and pretend like you're saved. That is not the gospel of God. That is a delusion. It's a strong delusion, but it's a delusion nonetheless. So, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Are you going to go the way of God? Are you going to go the way of Cain and Nimrod and Caesar and Pharaoh? For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance as ye know what manner of men we are, we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord. You're followers of the Lord. You gather with us. Having received the word in which, in much affection, with joy of the Holy Ghost. And what is the joy of the Holy Ghost? It's actually an inner knowing. It isn't just your intellectually deciding what is good and what is evil. It's you, in yourself, you know what is right and wrong because it's revealed to you in your heart and in your mind. You know, when we say follower there, that word follower, it appears seven times in the Bible and it's always translated follower. But it's actually defined imitator. It, I mean, you're doing as they did. Are you doing as the early church did? Are you doing as Christ did? You know, that's a noun as it appears there. But there's, there's also a verb to follow, to imitate, imitate anyone. And that appears about four times in the Bible. But 
Are you that imitator of Christ? Are you conforming to Christ? Like I said, we're not starting a new church. We're not, there is only one denomination in Christendom, and that's Christ, because He is our common denominator. But are we imitating Christ? Who gave of His life for others? He came that others might be saved, not to save Himself. So in verse 7 we see, So that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in Every place your faith to God word is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. You're not going to learn the ways of the gospel of the kingdom because we tell you. You're going to learn the ways of the gospel of the kingdom because they're written on your heart and on your mind with the Holy Spirit. That's the way it works. So that ye were in samples. You were examples in all of Macedonia and Achaia. And, and people were casting their bread upon the waters to help people in other areas because there was difficulties moving in waves across the Roman Empire. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. How do you serve God? You form a daily ministration to the tens, hundreds, and thousands that takes care of the needy of your society without force, without fear, without fealty. That's the way of Christ. Now, you want to go to a church that doesn't require you to do anything but show up and say you believe. I want you to know what Christ said. Not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who do with the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that you take care of one another through charity. And that's what made America great. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. There was wrath coming. There's wrath coming today. So, This is the gospel of the kingdom and it is the message in Thessalonians. So now we're into uh, Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God, the good news of God, with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, not tickling ears, but God which trieth our hearts. Philippi was a a kind of a mining town, if I remember right, that, uh, that a lot of Roman centurions... Uh, very patriotic Roman centurion settled in. And of course, being a patriot in itself is not enough to make you a virtuous person. There are patriots who are virtuous and there are patriots who are selfish. I mean, the Nazis were patriots. So just being a patriot by itself is not enough. You have to apply that patriotism with a morality, caring about others as much as you care about yourself. 
So this idea of the gospel is, to even hear it was a test, a challenge. And, uh, that, this, and that gospel was very clear. It included things like the Corbin of the Pharisees was making the word of God to none effect. Well, the Corbin of the Pharisees was the welfare systems put in place by people like Augustus Caesar, just like it was put in place by people like FDR and LBJ. These were the welfare systems of the state that provided for the needy of your society through forced offerings. Herod did the same thing with the help of the Pharisees, or at least a large portion of the Pharisees at that particular time. They were creating a welfare state which taxed the people, forced the contributions of the people, exercised authority one over the other of the people, and brought about a welfare state that provided for the needy of society, including parents, so that sons did no more ought for their parents through a system of sacrifice that was compelled by the government once you signed up, once you were registered. You had to pay in as a citizen of that government. And that was making the word of God to none effect because it was not based on faith, hope, and charity, but force. Very simple idea. I repeat it over and over again. But we need to understand that that's what they're talking about. The very next line, which is verse 4, goes on to say, For neither at any time used we flattering words, more of that tickling of the ears, telling you you're already saved just because you thought a thought. That would be a tickling ear. You don't have to do what God says. You just have to say you believe. And as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. They didn't come for what they could get. They didn't come flattering your ears, tickling your ears, uh, like so many preachers do today. Uh, they weren't after filthy lucre, you know, which we see mentioned in Titus and, and, uh, and other parts of the epistles where people are greedy for gain. If you go back to even Proverbs, where people said, let's all have one purse because they were greedy for gain, which is socialism where you all have one purse, and then you're going to profit from the labor of others, which is a covetous practice. All that stuff is forbidden from Old Testament to New Testament. Somehow other people are missing it. Why? Because ministers are coming with flattering words and uh, and pleasing men and saying what men want to hear. Not real popular to tell the truth. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Paul made tents, so he wasn't a burden to the people. He collected money, he collected donations, he delivered donations, he delivered supplies during hard times, but he also made tents and depended upon his own resources. He had every right to eat at the table that was offered, and all ministers do, who are you know spending full time in service of the gospel. But if they they make themselves independent of the needs of the people, then they can make a better judgment in rightly dividing the bread from house to house, which was part of that daily ministration of the gospel of the kingdom. Because everybody who got the baptism of Jesus Christ and the apostles could no longer apply for the benefits offered by the temple of Pharisee and their treasury. They were cast out. So now they had to take care of themselves. Today, actually we just discussed today, that if a certain chain of events comes about, I won't even dare mention it to you, that there could come a point where people would say, okay, you can leave the system. You know, just like they did in Egypt. Okay, you can go. Where are you going to go? How are you going to get there? How are you going to survive when you get there? <laughs> because they're, they're not going to let you stay maybe where you are. They're going to run you out. They're going to cast you out. Just like they cast out the Christians. Now, many of the Christians still lived in Judea and lived certainly in Jerusalem after Christ became king 
highest son of David. That's what he did. Fired the money changers. Only the king could do that. He's in the royal temple uh, instructing the ministers, giving commands that certain vessels are not to be carried through the temple anymore. And so what is he, what's he doing? He's the king. And he's giving commands to the king. But he isn't telling people to, you know, gabby tax collectors to go out and collect taxes from the people. He's telling the people to live by faith, hope, and charity in the perfect law of liberty. Same thing John the Baptist said. Take care of one another through free will offering. Same thing Moses said. Same thing all the apostles said. All the prophets said. But now the modern minister says, no, you just come to church, we'll sing some songs, we'll make you feel good, we'll tell you what you want to hear, tell you that you're already saved, tell you that Jesus loves you. But you can actually covet your neighbor's goods to the power of men who exercise authority one over the other. That's what they're telling you. That is not true. That is not what Christ said. It's clearly in the book that you're not to be that way. So anyway, understanding that conflict, now we look at uh, what Paul is writing. You know, like in verse 7, but we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being efficient, uh, affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day because we would not be changeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. The gospel of God is to love one another. To love God, a giver of life, not a taker, but a giver of life, a bestower, a protector, so that's, that's what we have to love, that idea that's incorporated in our own hearts and minds by his writing, by his spirit. And we have to love one another. That's the gospel of God. Not coveting one another's goods. Not bearing false witness. Not robbing or killing one another. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and Unblameably, we behaved ourselves amongst you that believe. Now, holily, that means separately, justly, means righteously, unblameably, you know, without, without fault, that we serve amongst you. As a father doth his children. That's what he ends up saying. As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. This reference to father as he, they're not asking you to call them father. See, the father has a right to tell the children, you do this, you know, you do this work and you do this work and it benefits the father because the father's the head of the household. And he has the authority of the Father. And we talked this morning about a bill that's coming up next year in Oregon that is taking power away from the parents. It has always been the power of the parents, the right of the parents, and giving it to, you know, the Oregon Health Authority. They are going to have the power of choice for your children now. And they get to do that under parents' patria, which I believe, I was thinking it was Title 15, but it's, I think it's Title 8. Section 15 of the U.S. Codes. The state has the power of father and authority. And we've written an article, you can go read it, at preparing you in his holy church, called No Man Father. Why was Christ saying that? And of course it was because all the senators of Rome were called father, the emperor was called father, and why were they called that? It's because they provided the benefits of the father of the family and therefore had the authority of the father of the family. And, and this is what would, this always happens when you centralize the power of government. This is what Samuel says. If you go back to Samuel 8, he's going to take and take and take and take and take, and he's going to even take your sons and daughters. 
Why? Because he takes on the role of father. He has the right to tell his sons what they can do and what they can't do. And of course that's happening in the world today in almost every country because people don't know how to live by faith, hope, and charity. They only know how to live by force, fear, and fealty. They don't even know. This is what they, they don't even understand the gospel of the kingdom. I'm not saying you don't obey Caesar. If you owe Caesar, pay Caesar. Why do you owe Caesar so much? It's because you ask so much of Caesar. The greatest destroyers of liberty are those who spread amongst them gifts, gratuities, and benefits. And you've been gobbling up those benefits instead of taking care of one another. Because your pastors have no daily ministration to care for the needy of your society and the widows and orphans of your society and pure religion. They send you to the world to get those benefits. The church in America didn't used to do that, but America used to be a pretty great place to live. It's becoming less and less a great place to live because you're not following the ways of Christ. So, as I said in verse 8, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because we ye were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren our labors and travails and laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of the kingdom. Ye are witness and God also how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves amongst you that believe, those who believe, believe in faith, hope and charity, not force, fear and fealty. As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. As a father, but we are not your father. That ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto the kingdom and glory. The dominion, this government of God that operated not covetously, but through charity. Not through force, but through love and hope. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, the called out of God. That's when you see the word churches there. You should always substitute called out of God because that's it's actually the word ecclesia, which means called out. And if I say churches, you start thinking some institution, some building, some organization. Well, the called out is an organization, but it's an organization of liberty and the perfect law of liberty for that fact, whereby it provides like a father, but not through force, but through charity. Which is, it goes, the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. In other words, those churches, those called out, are operating according to Christ and the teachings of Christ. And they're operating through faith, hope, and charity. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who doth kill the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men." This is the jealous people who don't like Christians because they have their own system, especially when their system worked better than the system of Rome. When they were fed and the free bread of Rome did not show up, they were jealous and envious of the Christians. And yeah, there were a lot of Christians who were fairly well off who became Christians because they now... That what they would have given to the temples of Rome, which had become corrupt and abusive, like we talked this morning, what are they, $2 trillion are going to give away in a stimulus package? That would mean that anybody, you know, with 300 some million Americans, that would be over $6,000 per American. But you're only getting 1000 in the stimulus package. What's happening to the other 5000 That's going somewhere else to the buddies. Remember, they're going to take your first fruits and they're going to give them 
away to their people. And, you know, they're going to say, oh, we're going to do it to this and this, but they're actually giving it away to their people. And guess who pays the bill? Because this this isn't money they actually have. They're borrowing this money against the future of your children. So they're going to take $6,000 plus interest from your children, from your children's future, because they're going to borrow this money. And they're going to give you a thousand, and they're going to give five thousand to their cronies and their buddies and their their officers. And you're going to get a thousand. See, if you divide it up evenly, if you had four kids and a wife, and that would be six people in your family, six times six, that'd be thirty-six thousand dollars. But you're only going to get a thousand dollars in your family. And they're going to give $35,000 to their officers and their servants. And you only get $1,000, you know, because you're getting a stimulus check for your family. One. I guess. I don't know. Maybe they give one for your, for the husband and for the wife. I doubt it. If you have a joint return, I bet you only get one. But you're not going to get $1,250 per child. That's going to go to somebody else. And it's borrowed against the life of your and sweat and toil of your children because it's going to have to be paid back. It's not going to be forgiven. Just like people who want their college debts forgiven. It's not going away. Somebody's still going to have to pay that. It's just not going to be the people who got the free college education. It's going to be the people who didn't go to college, saved their money, went to work and sweated and toiled. Money's going to come out of their pocket to pay for your tuition because you're irresponsible. You borrowed money you can't pay back and now somebody else has to pay it back for you. And you think that's fair and just. Well, if you think that's fair and just, then when you get justice, you probably squeal like a pig because that's the justice you'll get is the justice you hand out because what, how you judge, so shall you be judged. So he says... To them that they're going to experience the same thing that their Lord Jesus experienced and the prophets and those persecuted. It goes on in verse 16, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill up their sins always. For the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. So they're saying, we, we want to come back. We really like you guys. Our hearts really go out to you. We know that it's just we have suffered, you have suffered, and we wanted to come back to you. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindereth us. Satan is simply the adversary, the false accuser, those that oppose the way of Christ. Those that oppose the way of Christ are for the way of Balaam and for the way of the Nicolaitan, which is a system of forced offerings, not free will offerings. This is the distinction between Christ's religion and all the other religions. Christ's religion took care of the needy through charity. All the other religions were, not, I shouldn't say all, but most of the ones that they would say of the world at that time, of the adversary, were taking care of the needy through forced offerings. Sometimes they forced the offerings from the people. Sometimes, like when Caesar went into Gaul, he enslaved million people and killed and robbed Millions of people. And he kept most of the loot for himself, but a lot of the money he went sent back to Rome to feed them. We've talked all about this and gave you the details. To, to feed the welfare system of Rome. And so the people forgave his war crimes. Because they were war crimes, even by Roman standards. Because he filled the coffers of Rome. So the same adversary way of thinking has hindered the apostles, persecuted the apostles. Otherwise, they would have been there sooner. For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing, 
Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. See now, they make a reference there to his coming. They don't say second coming, his coming. But his coming is every day. This is, this is where theologies start to just expand on their, in their own imagination. When they say at his coming, they mean coming into your heart and into your mind. You know, cause God is supposed to be writing on your heart and your mind. He comes to you when you do that. And again, what draws you near to God and God near to you? Sacrifice. What is that sacrifice? It is the people taking care of the needs of one another through faith, hope, and charity. And they depend upon the called out, the ecclesia, the church, to facilitate that daily ministration. Because those that have in a local congregation share with those that don't have enough. But if everybody in the congregation has, they share with congregations on the other side of Thessalonia, on the other side of Corinth, on the other side of Galatia, so that nobody starves during these difficult times in uh, Judea and all of the Roman Empire. So, for ye are our glory and joy. Why? Because they are charitable and they are willing to suffer the same fate as others. But in... Um, Chapter 3, verse 1. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborers in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. That no man should be moved by these afflictions for yourself. Know that we are appointed thereunto. Everybody is going to suffer a little bit. There's going to be afflictions. But either you love God, you love giving life, you're willing to sacrifice for one another because you love one another, or you don't. If you don't, you're probably going to get afflictions anyway. But God is not going to intervene on your behalf because he's not going to hear your voice because that's what he says. You've gone this other way of looking to men who exercise authority to make things right. And God said you could do that. But know this, they're going to end up taking and taking and taking and taking and taking. And eventually you're going to cry out, but I'm not going to hear you. So what I'm saying is God will hear you if you repent and seek righteousness. It is not righteous to covet your neighbor's goods. It is righteous to care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. And you have to also care about your children and your neighbor's children. So you don't want to be throwing them into debt more and more and more. People ask me, should I take the stimulus check? I'm not telling you. If God is not writing on your heart, why do I have to say anything? You're not supposed to be following me. You're supposed to be following Christ. If we both follow Christ, we will both meet on the same path. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent unto you, I sent to know your faith, test by some means the temper have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. So, this was knowing that they were going to be persecuted, they were going to be tested, uh, they were going to run into difficult times, but they had to run into these, they had to overcome them on their own, and that's why I don't want you depending on me, or even depending on others, you have to make this internal commitment that you want to live by faith, hope, and charity instead of force, fear, and fealty. If you are determined to do that, and seek to do that, and choose to do that, God will meet you halfway. It probably meets you more than halfway. But if you don't turn around and think a different way, how can God come 
and hear you. But now, now, when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our afflictions and distress by your faith. For now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you for all joy wherewith we joy for your sake before our God. Night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. This is where we all are at. But, thank you for listening to Keys of the Kingdom. See us on the network. Go to preparingyou.com or hisholychurch.org and uh, join the network. And uh, we hope we will gather again in the faith of Christ. Amen. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.